show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go this is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Larry. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Sorry, what? Can't hear you with the sound of my snacks. If, mm. if, there's, if there's rustling and snacking sounds all over my intro and I have to do it again. What are what are you? Before I decide to re-record that, what are you um, thinking of thinking about today? What are you? What's this? <laughs> Who dares? <laughs> um, I'm drinking a beer, but mm. more importantly, yeah, I'm eating some barbecue-flavored crunchy chickpeas. I'd like to talk about snacks, oh. bar snacks. Well, in that case, no need to do a re-record because it's all about the snacks. Snacks. I am drinking a beer. Mm-hmm. Don't need to say any more about that. The important thing is, I'm also eating snacks. I am eating. Because you are not here, we are not doing this face-to-face. Because I would not be eating this if we were face-to-face. But because we're in the virtual <laughs> pub, I've just got some peanuts. Oh, a little, little bowl of penis. A little bowl of salty peanuts, which would cause you salty death. Penis. So I would I not be having them in your presence. No nuts, thanks. But yeah, I'm going to mm. attempt to eat these and talk at the same time. So I um, hope I'm no not one... going to eat mine, because they are going to wrestle the whole way through. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just still give it a go. I suppose okay. it's a bit of a trigger warning, in case anyone's got that like, phobia of mouth sounds. We'll try not to make it too bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think for bar snacks, we have to have a little bit of a working definition first. Yeah, so, okay. I think it's food that can be eaten at a bar without cutlery. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's fair game. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're kind of like... <laughs> I'm, oh, oh. I'm already, I'm already joking. <laughs> oh, God. This is a bad idea, guys. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> He's had too much penis. <laughs> I did. I got some peanuts stuck in my um, stuck in my throat, um, and it was not welcome. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I had some beer. We're back. <clears throat> yeah, Great I think it's the, the the lack of cutlery is the definitive thing there. You, you've got to you've right. be able to just shovel it in with your hands. Shovel it in with your hands, exactly. <laughs> Talking about bar snacks, right? Uh, yeah, sorry, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, historically, in bars with bar food, there have been um, things like stews and bread that would have been served historically in pubs, particularly the boarding ones. So, you know, a lot of a lot of the, the taverns and public houses would have had boarding, so, of course, they serve big meals. I think when it comes to snacks in this country, we probably want to start in the 19th century. So, okay. there's... A, um, a collection of writing called London Labour and the London Poor by Henry Mayhew that records some examples of people who made their living by selling snacks on the street and in public houses. So it wasn't food served by the pub. It was people kind of coming into the pub with their 
wheelbarrows of snacks and stuff. So we know that in the 1850s, pub goers were eating oysters because they were very plentiful. They were sort of a very common food. Pickled whelks. Um, Mayhew says, you know, not to fill themselves, but for a relish. So the idea wasn't <laughs> that they were coming in for a meal. It was just something to snack on while you drink. They had boiled green peas. And then they had some more substantial foods being sold from the streets as well. Fried fish, pies and sheep trotters. Um, mm. By the mid... 1800s, according to London Secret Square Mile by David Long, pickled eggs was so popular at one London pub that its address was changed. So it, it was called Pickled Egg Walk <laughs> in the mid-1800s. <laughs> it's now Crawford Passage, which is around about kind of Farringdon area. So yeah, mm-hmm. it used to be called Pickled Egg Walk, which I think uh, is much nicer of, than... Um... Chip Alley in Cardiff. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, there were lots of streets named after snacks that got renamed, which I think is a shame. <laughs> mm. uh, there are also some more questionable um, streets that were named after, let's say, more nefarious trades, um, which mm-hmm. had their names changed. I was w- I'm wondering whether to bring it up or not. You've no. gone too far. You've gone too far. You're going to have to. Shouldn't I? The one mm-hmm. that comes to mind that got its name changed in the square mile is, you know, Threadneedle Street? Yes. Threadneedle Street, where the Bank of England is and that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. So it used to be a notorious um, passage for streetwalkers, ladies mm-hmm. of the night. And um, although Threadneedle is still kind of bit of a euphemism for what might Mm -hmm. have gone on uh it used to be a lot more blunt it used to be called grope cunt lane whoa yep (laughs) so bank of england is sat on what was formerly grope cunt lane wow no idea i used to work around the corner from there yeah (laughs) only you'd known your career might have taken a whole different trajectory i know if i ever wanted a career change i could have just Mm -hmm. gone down the road exactly that's so um pub snacks took a left turn there pretty quickly let's get back on track um so in the (laughs) in the 19th century where we are uh so they're they're being sold as kind of things just to to snack on in britain because there was already a strong pub culture in the u.s there wasn't so much of a strong pub culture so they used the snacks as enticement to come into the bar they would be given for free rather than bought which is actually something i find still exists a lot like you wouldn't really you don't really get free snacks very often in the uk but you do get them quite a bit in the us mm-hmm. um then it would have been again oysters eggs salty foods things which encouraged further drinking because they were giving them away for free so we're already kind of seeing that focus on the saltier snacks to get people to drink up more um conversely as well though in, in many nations they used food to encourage less drinking so it's part of the temperance movements they would say you know you can only get a drink if you buy a full meal for example which uh might sound familiar we might come back to that actually later (laughs) on but i think the approach to whether food is encouraging or discouraging you from drinking more depends on the size of the food and the saltiness so what do you think came first packets of crisps or packets of nuts I'm going to say nuts. Let's find out. So the origins of crisps are a little bit obscure, 
but the earliest written recipes for paper-thin slices of potato fried in oil are from the early 19th century. So the process of their manufacture was um, industrialised only when we get to the 20th century and they're first put into packets, because before that they were just in like these big bulk containers and they would have been shoveled out, which I'm sure you'd enjoy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it first gets put into the packets in the US in the 1920s, but it's more famous for starting in the UK because that's where they really take off as a pub snack. And it was Frank Smith of Cricklewood, North London, who started selling his packeted crisps to pubs alongside salt cellars to season them with. So they weren't at that point pre-seasoned at all. So he'd sell the packets of crisps and then the salt cellars. Oh, uh, like but salt and shake crisps. Well, here we go. So mm. according to the legend, those salt cellars were just stolen too regularly. People would, you know, get them for the crisps and then run away with them. And that's why the salt sachet comes in. So it was Smith's mm. Salt and Shake that first did that. There's little yeah. blue packets of salt. You remember those? Yeah. Yeah. Funnily enough, um, I don't know if you listened to it, the Off Menu podcast. Uh, they were talking about those on that podcast last week. Um because every week they have like a secret ingredient and it's something yeah. that they don't like. And if anybody on the podcast mentions that ingredient or that thing that week, they get chucked off. And it was uh, <laughs> the, the Smith's Salt and Shake Crisps. <laughs> well, c- just, consider us yeah. chucked off uh, that podcast to which we were not invited. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so that, that's where it comes from. It was originally to stop uh, the salt sellers from uh, being stolen. And... Smith started his production of these actually in his garage in Cricklewood and then and that was in the 1920s and in 1927 it expanded to Brentford he actually moved to Australia though during the Great Depression so Smith's (laughs) is actually considered more of an Australian company because it wasn't long in manufacturing the UK before he moved over there for his expansion Mm -hmm. there you go salt and shake um Crisps, you know, they've got a long shelf life, they're easily stored, they don't smell, um, so they were much more preferable than having, you know, individual third-party sellers come in and trying to flog their sheep trotters and things like that in the pubs. So it's part of the reason why it became so popular, because they just had a lot more control over their space. There's an article actually in uh, The Economist from 1949 um, that says... Pub food can be summarised as a packet of crisps or a flaccid sardine on leathery toast. <laughs> flaccid. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's partly to do with the kind of the quality control as well, as opposed to trusting busy pub landlords to try and throw together a sandwich. <laughs> so there we go, 19, 1920s, more or less. Nuts. So the most famous UK brand is KP, uh, which is Kenyon and, Kenyon and Son. And they were founded as a company in 1853. But at the time, they only produced things like jam and pickles. They were a confectioner. But they started producing peanuts in 1952. Um, But actually, it was four years earlier they started putting nuts in packets. But they were hazelnuts to begin with. So they started with salted hazelnuts in packets. But after four years, they switched to peanuts. I think just because they're cheaper, they're more available. So it made better option for the pub snacks. Mm-hmm. But that means that crisps wins by about 30 years. A lot, yeah. I yeah, was not expecting 20, 25, that. 30 years. Um, in the US, you have something called beer nuts, which 
I think in this country we would think as being kind of generic nuts that you have with beer, but they are actually a trademark. And they consistently have to defend their trademark because of how generic it sounds to have something called beer nuts. There's no beer in it, but they mm-hmm. do add uh, a lot of sugar to it. <laughs> of course. So, it's American. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> Americans say it's got lots of sugar in it. But uh, yeah, they, they've been around since 1953. So again, kind of packaged nuts from the 50s in the US, but much more sugary than we would be used to. Um, have you... Uh, presumably you know about the story of why you might not want to grab some of the nuts from the open bowl at a bar yeah I think we all know that don't we tell us what do you think it is because there's wee wee on the nuts (laughs) wee wee on your nuts (laughs) well I mean first of all I think most bars aren't doing that anymore because of you know the new sort of sanitary awareness that covid had brought us um but there there have actually been no specific studies about urine on nuts so there's no evidence to suggest that that's true in any way first of all but secondly bacteria doesn't really survive very well among high levels of salt so you're probably more likely to get you know bacteria growing from urine as it were on things like the stool or the bar or whatever, because it's more likely to to be able to thrive there than in a bowl of salty nuts where the salt would prohibit that from happening. But hopefully you'd be less inclined to put those things in your mouth. But you'd still touch it with your hands and then put your hands in your mouth, for example. I mean, we're all more aware of that now and like sanitization. The point, <laughs> the point is, there isn't actually any evidence of that and in high salt environments, it's unlikely to be that unhealthy. Mythbusted. Mythbusted. So mm, go mad. Lick everything, everyone. It's fine. Lick. Put what I'm salt saying on it is, first. salt everything, then lick it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another salty packeted thing that um, arose around that time. So pork scratchings oh. from the 18th century. I know I'm going to make this really short because it's just too gross to think about. But from 18th century onwards, they would be so kind of earlier really than than crisps were being made they'd have pork scratchings and that's because you know villages and taverns would have kept pigs themselves they would have found themselves and they want to use every bit of it so they just created a way to be able to eat the skin but the kind of surge in popularity in the pubs happened after the second world war and it was it became part of that general trend of crisps and nuts to eat anything that was salty and could be put in a cellophane packet so literally anything Mm. um by the 1970s, they become kind of that pub cliche. So they followed on a little bit after the crisps and nuts. But that's what I'm going to say about it because they're too gross. Yeah. 70s and 80s then was more the area, 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 era. <laughs> <laughs> I've had too many peanuts. It's gone to my head. Um, it was more the era of pastry. So you see this kind of big boom of pies and pasties and sausage rolls. And in particular, in the bars there, they started to have like this hot box on the on the bar, like a sort of standalone hot box where they could put the pies and they would just like be kept warm and sort of slightly soggy all day um, or else microwaved with the arrival of the microwaves. And I think it still counts because it is just about possible to eat those without cutlery, although you might get sort of slightly soggy burnt hands. But I think it still counts. Mm. Where do you think the sausage roll comes from? Greg's. <laughs> do you know what? 
I was so confident that you were going to answer that like um, like a QI kind of answer that I prepared a fact about Greg's. Oh God! <laughs> How many sausage Am I rolls? Am that predictable? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> to me. Um, how many sausage rolls a year do you think Greg sell? Oh my gosh! Okay. Um, Fifty million. Not a bad guess, but it's one hundred forty million per year. Whoa! Yeah. How many of those have you been responsible for? At least a third. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to give you some... Uh, do you want to have a legitimate guess, or shall I tell you? Uh, where do sausage rolls come from? Yeah, if not Greg's. I'm going to say somewhere up north. Okay. Um, let's say... Bolton. Bolton. <laughs> the All right. Bolton sausage roll. <laughs> the Bolton sausage roll. <laughs> I think I've heard that phrase, but in another context. Um, so I'm going to take you back first of all and say that meat or other foodstuffs wrapped in dough can definitely be traced back to classical Greek and Roman eras. But I wouldn't necessarily call that a sausage roll because it's not flaky pastry. And mm-hmm. I think flaky pastry is like one of the defining things of a sausage roll, really, in the, mod- yeah. in the modern age, let's call it. If you so, don't fear eating it in a brand new car... It's not a sausage roll. I think that's a very good working definition. I like that. (laughs) So sausage rolls in that kind of modern sense of being rolled in flaky pastry seems to have come from the beginning of the 19th century in France. What? Yeah, because it actually got popular in London during the Napoleonic Wars. So it was when we were at war with France and we discovered that they were making these uh, delicious sausage rolls that we sort of stole it and claimed it as an English dish. And now a lot of people think of it as a very English thing to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but flaky pastry, is that French? I want to say no. <laughs> <laughs> because of the way I asked that question? <laughs> where, d- where does the croissant come from? I feel like these are all KY based like trick questions and I'm going to say France and you're going to go boop, boop, boop. <laughs> yeah I am feeling very QI tonight um, are you going to say France? yeah the correct answer is Hungary oh, the croissant is Hungarian damn. yeah it was uh, made in the late 17th century in Hungary uh, the croissant but again, mm-hmm. a lot of people think it's French, and French made the sausage roll, and they think it's English, so who knows? Um, got a record a from the <laughs> Berry and Norwich Post from 1809, which mentions someone called T. Ling. I don't know anything about T. Ling, other than they were 75 years old, but they are described as an industrious vendor of saloop, buns, and sausage rolls. So we know they were super popular by uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Actually, I give you a slight saloop side note because I don't know if you've Please heard of that. Please do. I love it. So, uh, saloop is powdered orchid root, which is very popular in the Levant even now. Actually, um, the ancient Romans used to drink it as well. They thought it was an aphrodisiac because the root looked like a wang. <laughs> so, <laughs> basically, they they called it um, priapiscus. Do you remember, I think it was when we did the Dionysus one, I mentioned Priapus. Mm-hmm. 
uh, which is basically an erection. Um, but it becomes popular in the 17th and 18th centuries in England. And so th- how it's consumed is you uh, mix the cellar powder, that powdered orchid root, with water until it's thickened and then it's sweetened and it'd be flavoured with like orange flower or rose water. So it was sort of used as an alternative to coffee and tea, really. I think it slightly predated coffee and tea. Coffee and tea became more popular and then it was like the alternative to it. They would substitute it with British orchid roots uh, instead of the original Turkish ones, which they would call dog stones. Dog stones? Dog stones, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, that was a that was a little segue again from snacks. Back to pastries. Uh, so 1864 uh, the times first mentions it first mentions this mentions sausage rolls Um, someone a disreputable character called William Johnston a wholesale pork pie manufacturer and sausage roll maker is fined 15 pounds which is now about 1300 pounds under the nuisances removal act for having on his premises a large quantity of meat unsound, unwholesome, and unfit for food. So within, what are we saying? Within like 50 years of sausage rolls becoming um, popular, they are full of rubbish. (laughs) And to this day, it remains. (laughs) Just eyelids and lips. Yeah. So, uh, well, there are um, like court records, theft cases um, from the Victorian era about sausage roll production, more than one. Um, where the apprentices are taught to soak brown bread in red ochre. You know, ochre is like that mineral that was used as a base for paint forever. So red ochre, salt and pepper to give the appearance of beef sausage for the filling. So it was just mm-hmm. dyed bread, salt and pepper. Dyed bread, salt and pepper. You know. Um, that's it. That's, that's uh, sausage rolls. I'm going to go on to the 90s now because that was 70s and 80s. The 90s... Just it's cocaine, all about right? <laughs> it's all about cocaine and hand cooked. <laughs> Everything was hand cooked in the nineties. Like take yourself back. We're talking kettle chips, we're talking twiglets, we're talking Bombay mix. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Bombay mix, first of all. Um, I think everyone's gonna be familiar with it being this sort of spicy snack. Um, the British sort of found their love of it in the days of the Empire. And it was named Bombay Mix for them as they found it in Bombay, which is now known as Mumbai on the west coast of India. Uh, There, they would consume it during festivals and between meals. Um, But when it was brought back in the... uh, Well, not brought back in the 90s. It was brought back in the Empire days, but it became popular in the 90s. It's like this pub snack. Um, In the US, it's called Punjabi Mix. And in India, it's generally called Chefta. And in Mumbai which is what we've named it after. It's called Tudor. And as Chanachur in Bangladesh. And the Australians call it Booja Mix. And in Sri Lanka, it's just called Mixture. <laughs> I'm with Sri Lanka on this. Just call it Mixture. It's easier, mixture, isn't it? Mixture, yeah. It's not messing about. <laughs> <laughs> do you like Bombay Mix? Um, I do, actually. But mm. it's, it's one of those funny things, like the texture and the crunch of it gets a little bit annoying after a while. But then it's just the flavour. You want more of the flavour and you just keep dipping back. Yeah. I think this is perfect, very small bowl bar snack thing. The kind of thing you have with one drink. Yeah. Twiglets. 
I say kind of become really popular in bars in the 90s because of the whole hand-cooked thing. But mm-hmm. actually, they were invented much earlier than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1929, they were mm-hmm. created uh, by a French person. Again, all these... Uh, French people and their excellent snacks. All these supposedly English bar snacks that were actually... But it was a French person living in Britain. So it was a French biscuit maker uh, called Monsieur Rondalin who was the technical manager at Peak Freens, which is then a very well-known kind of biscuit manufacturer in Bermondsey. In fact, in Mill Street, which is just over the road from where I am right now, mm. is where they made Twiglets for the first time, and they added brewer's yeast to a leftover batch of Vita Wheat dough, which is like Rivita. So, yeah, it is Marmite. It's not actual Marmite, but it's the same, same thing. So good. Yeast. Do you like them, yeah. Twiglets? Love them. Absolutely love them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were first launched to consumers in 1932 then. And for many, many years, really like right through to the 70s, they were just um, a seasonal thing. So they were really marketed as like a Christmas thing. You would get your drum of Twiglets, (laughs) which I do sort of remember actually from the 80s when I first had them. It was like a Christmas drum of Twiglets. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were... But they were boxed in the 30s as an accomplishment to cocktails and champagne. And they were really marketed as like quite high class high in the end. 30s. Nice. Yeah. Seeing some of the original posters from the 30s. And it's, uh, the question is, are you a nibbler? And it seems like a saucy <laughs> indulgence that you would have at a cocktail party. Yeah. I like Love that. It. I think they should bring that back. Yeah. Are you a nibbler? Absolutely. Um, So that's the 90s for you. The 21st century is all about imports. So olives, pistachios, wasabi peas, charcuterie, chili rice crackers, all those things which we think are exotic because they come from somewhere else. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan Um, of chili rice crackers. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of all of those things, really. Um, Apart from the charcuterie. Pass on Uh, (laughs) wasabi peas. I'm going to tell you, though, about olives. That's the mm-hmm. one I'm going to pick up on. So, okay. some ol- just some straight-up olive facts for you. <laughs> Today, there are over 800 million olive trees planted worldwide. The average lifespan of an olive tree is between 300 and 600 years. But one of the oldest olive trees in the world is on the island of Crete, and it is about 4,000 years old, and it's still producing fruit. Olives. I, I don't know. I thought you were going to be more impressed with that one, so I thought. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, wow. <laughs> Imagine still bearing fruit at four thousand years old. I mean, still am, mate. <laughs> <laughs> You're thirty something, and you look pretty shriveled. <laughs> oh. I'll laugh at the next one or whatever you want me to do. Come on. Fine. Um, olives are not actually naturally edible. No so they way! Have to go... Thank you. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> um, they have to be processed because you've got to remove the glucoside oleuropane before they are edible. So that's why that's they're first treated name. with lime. Oleuropane, out. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, oleuropane. <laughs> Um, yeah, they're treated with lye and then pickled and that kind of removes that part of it. 20% of the olive is oil which mm-hmm. is rich in polyphenols, 
which are natural antioxidants. They have healthy monosaturated fats, oleic acid, like omega-6, omega-3. It helps to prevent coronary heart disease, lower cholesterol, blood pressure, reduce aging effects. You should take notes. Um, strengthens the immune system, <laughs> protects from damaging effects of free radicals, and a lot more good stuff. So actually, they're a really good thing to uh, consume with alcohol because it counteracts a lot of the effects of it. I'm not a fan of olives, did I Did I mention that? I know I passed I on the wasabi peas, but mm-hmm. olives as well. I can, Perhaps that's well, why I, mean, I wasn't I... so excited about the, the facts. Yeah, I can tell you're not a fan of olives as well because looking at your face. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> the idea of lining your stomach before you go out, do you think it works? I just do pre-drinks, if I'm honest. <laughs> I've also made a note about that. <laughs> like, Illyria will answer, she just does pre-drinks. <laughs> Greg's and pre-drinks, I've got you down to a T. <laughs> so the note is, although you only normally do pre-drinks, other people might think of lining their stomach with food. <laughs> Oh, I don't so, want to do this podcast anymore. So, <laughs> got it in for you today. So the truth is, yeah, it, it does work, but um, not all snacks will line your stomach equally. So slower digested foods are the ones that help you to not get drunk so quickly because they keep the alcohol in your stomach, which means that it absorbs the alcohol more slowly than if it goes straight through to the intestines. So if you have something that, you know, you would digest quite quickly, for, for example, like a lot of the kind of bar snacks stuff and it goes straight through to your intestines, you're still going to get drunk as quickly. So mm-hmm. things that are good for helping slow down that digestion are things like oats or things that will replace the potassium like bananas and sweet potatoes. So if you're really intent on slowing down how fast you get drunk, have a banana. Have a banana. Ooh, have a banana. Or even better, <laughs> slice a banana on top of some porridge. Mmm. Mm. Yes, exactly. Um, have you heard that beetroot restores your liver? Um, have you made a note about something beetroot poos? <laughs> yep. <laughs> good, good, yeah. Beetroot makes your poo go red, doesn't it? <laughs> yep. Yep, it does. Next. Specifically mine, it really does. And it's... Um, when you forget you've had beetroot the day before, it's really terrifying. It's a horror, mm-hmm. terrifying experience. You're like, oh no, they've got to call the ambulance. Oh no, I ate beetroot. It's fine. Um, but have you have you heard that that beetroot? No, is I had like not. A restorative. Oh, okay. No. I did. I did think you would have heard of that. I think that's kind of a, a thing. But I was kind of preparing myself for is this real or is this a mythbuster? Mm, um, however, it's real. It is real. It's not. It's not a myth to bust. So. Um, mm. It has kind of traditionally been used as a remedy to activate liver enzymes. It increases bile that helps the liver to um, detox, your detox function. It has antioxidants, vitamins A, B6, iron, and they will help protect the liver from inflammation and the oxidative stress um, while enhancing the ability to remove toxins from the body. So they did do a test on this, like how effective it actually is, because they know they've got this stuff in it, but does it work? Um, And so there was a study they did with rats where they found that beetroot helps to prevent the oxidative stress and reduce the um, lipid peroxidation, which is kind of like a common marker they'd use for cell damage, by 38%. 
So if you eat some beetroot, 38% more likely that you will do less liver damage. Sort of said that the wrong way around, but you know what I mean. We should, like, make a beetroot beer. Mmm. I love beetroot. I eat a lot of beetroot. Mm. Um, So I think, like, a lot of countries have had a healthier approach to eating small plates with their booze than the UK does. So not just salty snacks, but, you know, eating tapas in Spain, for example... But, I sort of alluded to this earlier, something which is pushing Britain into this plated direction of things that would have formerly been regarded as snacks. But they are now served warm and with cutlery because it means they're a substantial meal. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. Do you remember that whole thing in lockdown? (sighs) Yeah. A scotch egg is a substantial meal. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah remarketing things that were formerly bar snacks as substantial meals because they mm-hmm. get served with cutlery in a napkin because we had those rules in pubs during lockdown that you couldn't just go for a drink you had to buy a substantial meal with it which is straight out of the temperance movement book <laughs> yeah which um was pretty it seems like a sort of fever dream that that period now looking I back on it it's it's worked in our favor though because a lot of pubs now offer food that didn't before <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's of a good quality and they haven't just like yeah, whacked yeah. Uh, against us in the microwave. I was gonna say that's exactly what came to mind as against us. Yeah, I think that's what constitute, Yeah. <laughs> All right, that was my um, fairly girthy introduction to the history I'm of uh, UK that. bar snacks. I'm a big fan gonna, of girth. I'm going to attempt to eat some peanuts and not choke for a while, so I'm going to hand over to you. Good luck. You do a better job than I would. I wouldn't last two minutes. Um, snacks. So I actually looked at American bar snacks. Because, um, mm. yeah, we, we do pretty well over here with our scotch eggs and pies and crisps and peanuts and whatnot. Uh, so I just wondered how different it was over in the US. And I had a whale of a time researching this, actually, because I didn't realise that pretty much every American state has its own trademark bar snack and they're Mm. like really serious about it and everyone's trying to do like the best version of it it's it's a big thing over there uh so yeah i've just got a big list in front of me of all the different states and their snacks and i thought it'd be fun to just go through some of them perhaps you'd like to try and guess what some of them are oh god okay um let's start with kentucky I mean, you'd have to snack. you'd have to presume it would be chicken wings or something. You I would, would wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, well, Kentucky is famous for its rolled oysters. Okay, good. Um, so, Kentucky rolled oysters are um, they're they're pretty big. They're baseball sized, and if you look at them on the bar, they kind of look like a big Scotch egg, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's three oysters. They're rolled in egg, batter, and cornmeal crumbs, and then deep fried. Um, so yeah, rolled oysters, the name rolled obviously being from the way in which they're made. They're rolled in the cracker crumbs. Um, so apparently these were, and it actually echoes what you said earlier with regards to dates and giving away snacks for free. They date back to the 19th century. They were given away as a free um, incentive to saloon 
um, goers with every beer or whiskey that was bought, you'd get a free mm. rolled oyster. Uh, it's unknown if they were invented by the Italian immigrants Philip Mazzoni and his brothers. Uh, they were the first guys that served it. Um, so it's unknown if they they kind of owned the recipe or if they just brought it over. But um, it was during Prohibition that the Mazzoni Saloon stayed open selling the oysters in their restaurant. And that's when it became a really popular food around Missouri and still is to this day. Mm. Uh, sorry, not Missouri, Kentucky. Okay. Let's talk about Missouri next. What do you think Missouri is? I mean, I really don't know that much about it, so I'm going to say something to do with fish. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> so Missouri's bar snack, uh, toasted ravioli. Oh. Um, and it's, yeah, pretty much mozzarella sticks, essentially, but wrapped in pasta and deep fried, which sound delish. Mm, um, okay. Quite hard to get the exact origins of it. There's lots of different Italian chefs who claim it was them that invented it, but they all mm -hmm. have the same kind of story, and it's pretty straightforward. A chef accidentally put the ravioli in some oil instead of water, and so toasted ravioli was made. Um, Oklahoma. What's this snack? Any ideas? Oklahoma. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I know it's something about something about planes or something. So I'm going to say buffalo. Nope. Fried <laughs> okra. They these are, are so far from any stereotype I have about these states. I know, <laughs> and that's how I felt. When I was reading all the way through this, it was like, oh, it's obviously going to be... Oh, no, it's okra. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, apparently they're pretty obsessed with it. They refer to it as southern popcorn, because they eat mm. so much of the stuff in the bars there. Um, some people even say okra homer. Mm, wow. Little pun for you there. Who are these people, and where can I kick them? <laughs> <laughs> They're in Oklahoma, of course. Um, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. uh, if I had to move anywhere, based purely on this research that I've done in Bar Snacks, if yeah. I had to move anywhere, it would be Arkansas. Okay. Does that mean that it's got, like, mint sauce and, like, lots of sauces and dips and things? Yes and no. no. Oh, Good okay. kind of with the dips and things. But they've got that's, the that's snack. Got. They've got the daddy of bar snacks. Frickles. Oh, man. Yes. I, I thought it, but I didn't dare to say it. Because I wanted <laughs> it to be true so much, I thought if I said it, it wouldn't be. <laughs> I am going to talk about Frickles at length later, because I'm okay. obsessed with them. Uh, but yeah, Arkansas, it's the home of frickles it's where they were invented but as well as frickles despite them being the birthplace of the frickle mm -hmm. um according to my research it's not actually frickles that are the main kind of bar snack of arkansas fame mm -hmm. they are most known for their cheese dip apparently cheese dip in arkansas is spot on and it's everywhere um so when you think of like American cheese, it's always that like really processed orange, gross cheese. Apparently, yeah. the cheese dip in Arkansas is not this. It's like a a normal kind of pale yellow melted right. cheese that you'd expect. Um, 
And they love it so much that every year they have the world's largest cheese dip competition in a place called Little Rock. It's it was the tenth year this year of the cheese dip competition. So Wow. I mean, if I had to be somewhere, I'd want to be there with <laughs> frickles and cheese dip. <laughs> Sounds incorrect. Nice. Uh Vermont is next on the map. And um, guesses. Isn't that where... Is Vermont where Ben and Jerry's come from? So, is it going to be Baked Alaska? (laughs) (laughs) I'm running out of ideas now. (laughs) Uh, So, Vermont have a passion for pickling. Right. Uh, And their bar snack of choice is uh, dill-infused green beans. Mm. So, you'd have a little jar of green beans pickled. Um, so they were developed there purely because the green beans have a really short season therefore had to be preserved so pickling them obviously was the first thing they did mm-hmm. um, you can get lots of variations the ones I like the sounds of was the ones that were pickled with chilies so they've got a bit of a kick to them mm. yum 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 uh, California ooh I mean they've got lots of fresh produce I always mm-hmm. think I suppose I always think of warm, origin warm. oranges and grapes and you know fruit and veg and stuff. Yes, come so on, I'm gonna, get in there. I'm gonna go with some kind of veg. Mm-hmm. Um Is it Kale crisps? <laughs> <laughs> so close. <laughs> California is responsible for ninety percent of the avocados produced in the US. So was, it would only make sense that it's quack. Yeah, I was on a theme, wasn't I? Yeah, you mm-hmm. were very. You, you would have got there, I feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, they love a bit of guac there. Uh, Delaware crab dip. I'm not going to let you guess that one because it's very tenuous. Crab dip mm-hmm. in Delaware. A chew- gooey cheese topped crab dip is the speciality. Um, it. Um, this has a broiled layer of cheese on top and a creamy molten blue crab spread hiding underneath. It's served with saltine crackers and cold beer. I'm going to say that one's not a bar snack. No, because it's Imagine more eating of a... that without cutlery. Well, you've got your crackers, haven't you? Mm, yeah, but no, I'm not buying it. It's like the, the guac of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. <laughs> um, Florida have got a pretty gross sounding one. If you want to hazard a guess. Is it... Um, is it deep fried battered bits of old people? Close. Deep fried battered bits of chopped up sea snail meat. Same thing. A.K.A. conch fritters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can order a basket of those. Blech. No thanks. No, I won't. Thank you. Um, Georgia. You'd be at That's... home in Georgia. Oh well, I know Georgia is the peach state, which mm. will horrify you. You're not a not a fan of peaches. Well, their other one isn't much better. Peaches and they're not serving peaches and this. They're just serving this, but I don't want it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I can't remember what you dislike and I like mushrooms. Uh, is it boiled, mushrooms? Boiled peanuts. Oh, okay. Yes. 
So they are apparently proud of their peanut farms. There's a lot of them in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, boiled peanuts can be found at farm stands and in the down-home bars throughout the state. Um, apparently eating a bag of boiled peanuts is a very different experience from crunching on roasted ones. It's known as the country caviar. It has a soft shell and a succulent goober pea inside. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if you want to I... try boiling your peanuts next time. I do. I don't know if that's a thing you can do at home. Um, yeah, you could. Buy a bag of, well, we call them monkey nuts here, we don't know if they're peanuts yeah. that have been unshelled and not roasted and salted. Get those and boil them. Give it a go. Hmm. Uh, Indiana had one that sounds quite nice. Sauerkraut balls. Mm, yes, please. Uh, so, yeah, just, again, breaded and fried sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. I, I sense the theme in America. They're like, yeah, that's nice. Let's dip it in batter and fry it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely the theme of American cuisine. <laughs> um, I could go on and on and on because there are a lot of states, but... Uh, I'm going to stop there, I think, and I'm going to finish off with something pretty disgusting that I ate. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, it wasn't quite in the US, it was in the Caribbean, it was in Barbados, mm-hmm. and it was my pre-vegan days. I went to one of their little rum shops, uh, which I'm sure you'll have seen nice photos of. They're just like the nice colourful little wooden shacks at the side of the road where they serve beer and rum Mm -hmm. and snacks. And one of their snacks, the most famous one in Barbados, is pudding and sauce. Um, I didn't really know what it was. I just ordered it because I was told it was like the local delicacy. So I ordered Mm -hmm. some pudding and sauce. Uh, By the way, that that sounds like an an end of peer double act. <laughs> Pudding and sauce. <laughs> yeah. Please welcome the 1950s comedy stylings of Pudding and Sauce. Warning, might be a bit racist. Uh, I, I wish I'd never met Pudding and Sauce. <laughs> um, my cousin, I, I should have known when I sat down to eat it when my cousin said, Don't tell her what it is until she's finished. I was like, Okay. Oh no, that's never a good sign. Um, so, much like pork scratchings, really, it was a way for people to use all of the pig um so the sauce is made from pickled pork uh traditionally it was every bit of the pig trotters ears snout tongue whatever they had it it was everything um so they'd mix it with pickled onions cucumbers limes peppers and parsley uh and then they'd kind of like wrap it in like a in the pig's intestine to like make a sausage essentially and and cook that up and then they'd serve it with the pudding which is steamed sweet potato with chilies and herbs stuffed into a pig intestine again before boiled so just hot spicy herby bits of pig and sweet potato shoved into intestines and boiled that's what i ate great thanks mm-hmm. that was, um and I'm gonna st- I was um, I was just as we were going through the <laughs> the US states, I was thinking, I wonder how many people have already sort of stopped the podcast to go off and make themselves some food and come back again. Oh, but I hope that yeah. they didn't do it just before that moment because um, it's put me right off my nuts. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'd rather I, have wee wee nuts than pudding and sauce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> unproven, unproven wee wee nuts. I, I successfully ate peanuts all the way through your section and didn't choke this time, so it is possible. Um, all right, back to me. I'm, I'm not done talking about crisps. Oh. So let's go back to that. Tell me, mm. what do you think the earliest reference to crisps is in a work of fiction? In a work of fiction? Yeah, work of fiction, earliest reference to crisps. I'm going to say Dickens. <gasps> She's learned something! Yay! It's always Dickens. It's always Dickens. <laughs> yeah, in A Tale of Two Cities, 1859. Um, can I uh, ref- crack a beer to celebrate? You can. You can crack a beer to celebrate. Um, so in it, he refers to the snack as husky chips of potatoes. So mm. controversially, the first reference to crisps in the work of fiction, he actually does call it chips like you would in America when you're referring to crisps. Mm-hmm. Which is one of those kind of things where you're like, America, why don't you call it crisps like you're supposed to, like we named it, but it turns out actually the first time they did call it chips. So there you go. Um, Walker's Plain Crisps have Mm -hmm. a decibel rating of 70.6, which is slightly louder than the sound of a car passing at 65 miles per hour from a distance of 25 feet or the noise of a vacuum cleaner. That's so loud. It's very loud. And did you know the sound of crunching contributes to the pleasure of eating crisps? This is why it's so important. They did a study mm. showing that consumers who eat crisps with headphones on become bored with the crisps more quickly than if they can hear it. Shit. Yep. That's blown my mind. Mm-hmm. The psychological effects of crunchiness. Um, the, the largest bag of crisps on record was created in 2013. Would you like to guess how big these crisps were? Going by weight. The biggest bag of crisps or the biggest crisp? No, the biggest, the largest bag of crisps. I mean, were they sold in the shops? They were Or was this just a one-off? This was a one-off stunt. Okay. I'm going to say... 500 kilos of crisps. You need to double that. It was 1,141 kilograms. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how fast do you reckon you could smash through that? By the end of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. I would love to hear that as an ASMR experience. <laughs> Just you diving into that bag of crisps. <laughs> eating your way back out again <laughs> what flavor were they um i don't know actually it doesn't i hope they weren't salt and shake i'm out i've got a feeling they won't have put anything on it because that would be oh. an extraordinary amount of salt but who knows it was caucus mm. crisps by the way if you want to look it up caucus crisps 2013 caucus. um being as we are recording this episode uh, mm-hmm. at the time of uh, the COP talks, I thought I'd bring some environmentalism into this. Oh, wait, um, <laughs> don't worry, I'm not using the P word. You can, you can relax. <laughs> I'm talking CO2. So walkers have said that they've adop- they're adopting a new technique that will slash their CO2 emissions from its manufacturing process by 70%. And it is booze-related. 
So what they're doing is they're capturing CO2 from beer fermentation in a nearby brewery, and then it's mixed with the potato waste and turned into fertilizer. And then they spread that on their on their fields to feed the following year's potato crop. So um, when you create fertilizer, normally it produces a lot of CO2 emissions, but the technology they're adopting means that they don't have to generate any additional CO2. Sorry, there's a lot of noise going outside you might hear because we're also recording this on bonfire night. There's explosions (laughs) in music and all sorts of things happening. Um, So what they've done is they've created this sort of combo dual function between the beer and the crisps. So it captures the emissions from the brewery, the CO2 emissions from the brewery, instead of going into the atmosphere. And then it saves on generating CO2 for fertilizer. So they've already trialed it on the potato uh, seed beds this year. And then next year in 2022, they're going to install that equipment at their Leicester factory. Beer and crisps are a happy combination. Mm-hmm. Uh, beer crisps. Mm-hmm. I want to tell you about it's my final sort of crisp bit of info. Um, on April the 1st, alarm bells ringing, Northern Monk posted a mock-up of a can on their social media channels that uh, was replicating the crisp packaging from Seabrook. They sort of obviously did it as an April Fool's joke. But it was actually a double bluff because the beers had actually been uh, brewed at Northern Monk's um, uh, Leeds-based brewery using tubs of the actual cheese and onion and prawn cocktail flavouring that oh, Seabrook used to make their crisps. all of the flavours? Why? I completely agree. So oh. here's here's the flavour descriptions. Um, and I wish we were adhering to the no tasting notes part of the podcast at this point, but here we go. So the cheese and onion lager is a 5.4% um, lager. It says refreshing lager. So lifted, lifted by a distinct aroma and notes of cheese and onion. <laughs> leaving you with the aftertaste of just having finished your favourite packet of crisps. I don't enjoy that aftertaste. I really don't. No, 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 no. And the prawn cocktail goza is a 5% sour beer that brings with it the tang of prawn cocktail, (laughs) finishing with a distinct saltiness that's true to the traditional goza style. Can't think of anything worse, frankly. No. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Although I do want to try it just so I could justify being this outraged. See, I knew you would want to because when I read this and I was like, what a disgusting idea, booze flavoured crisps. I got the most horrible flashback and I think I'm just going to hand over to you. Yes, I know what you're referring to. And I prepared myself. Have, I you, prepared, had... have you prepared a statement? <laughs> <laughs> I had a little preparation because I knew I'm not going to be able uh-huh. to live down the Prosecco crisps. If we're going to be talking about bar snacks, he's going to bring it up. So guess what? What? Are you ready for this? Yeah. Look what I found! (gasps) No! (laughs) Oh, that's... So, M&S Food Collection Hand Cooked Crisps Winter Berry and Fizz. I don't know how you could possibly have gone and bought that again. They are... I know, they are... I was... To be honest, I know we'd said never again. But I just went to m and I was just amazed at the fact that they are still making these and people are still buying them and they're still on the shelf. Um, so it was more out of complete shock that I bought them. Uh, so it would be rude not to kind of open them up, give them 
and it'll taste and oh remind my goodness. ourselves. Please, please do that. Can I can I just go and grab another beer out of the fridge before you do it? Because I of haven't got course. anything to support myself for this moment. <laughs> I'll be back in one minute. Okay, I'm back. I, I nearly came back with something that was 7%. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not going to be that shocking. Let's, let's dial it down a bit. Let's go to a session. All right. Okay. Ready. So I'm just going to read the product description for everyone at home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Potato crisps with berry and white wine seasoning with edible gold stars. I've jazzed it up at the stars again. <laughs> the stars were one of the worst parts of it. <laughs> Um, so the ingredients, um, it was interesting because I don't think I really looked into the ingredients last time. I just wanted to get them out of my eyesight as quick as possible. Um, but the ingredients include dried sparkling white wine, bicarbonate and raspberry juice and dried blackcurrant juice, which is just a terrible idea. Oh, it's absolutely awful because that's what's creating the fizz on your tongue. It's not. Bicarb. It's obviously not carbon dioxide. It's bicarb. And bi- if you put too much bicarb on your tongue, it's not pleasant. Yeah. So just it's picture just sort of that. Burns. Dri- dried sparkling white wine, raspberry juice, blackcurrant juice, and bicarb. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm about to eat. Horrendous. It's one of the worst <laughs> things I've ever put in my mouth. That's saying something. See, they don't smell bad. <laughs> they just smell like ready salted crisps. It's probably the bicarb killing everything else. <laughs> you sure you haven't got COVID, mate? <laughs> okay here we go let's see if i remember how nice these were Mm. oh yeah there's the bicarb (laughs) i was about to say (laughs) they're not as bicarby as last time but yeah it is it's like they've made salt and shake, but they've replaced the sachet with bicarb. <laughs> bicarb, yeah. <laughs> it's horrendous. I don't know why anyone if anyone can't this. find these at home, just go and get some ready salted crisps, put a load of bicarb in there, shake them about, and then eat mm-hmm. them. Save yourself the however many quid I spent on these. <laughs> Do you even know what the gold stars are made of? It doesn't say. It just says <laughs> My edible <boy>. stars. <laughs> If, I think that their definition of edible is, well, you can put it in your mouth. <laughs> I'm going to take one out. Here we go. Here's a tiny little gold star that I'm mm-hmm. extracting. Yeah. I'm, I'm reckoning it's like rice paper. Yeah. I think it's rice paper. You don't know. <laughs> you don't, don't, don't be like, oh, yeah, I think this is what it is. You don't know what it is. <laughs> You're just so eating common. it. <laughs> Well, no, they're still that's, terrible. That's um, absolutely horrendous. Can mm-hmm. you were you going to tell me more about frickles? Because I prefer. Yes, those. I was. So I did do a little bit of reading into the best bar snack ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so frickles. For anyone who doesn't know what a frickle is, it's a dill pickle that's been battered and deep fried. If you don't know. Please go and get some, because they are the greatest invention in the world. Um, so they started around the, the 1960s in America. Uh, the first known printed recipe was in the Auckland Tribune on the 19th of November, 1962, which, as far as I'm concerned, should be a national holiday. <laughs> um, 
So the recipe referred to them as French fried pickles. Mm. Uh, but it's not quite the kind of frickles that we know and love today, because that recipe called for sweet pickle slices and pancake mix. Right. So that's a slightly different kind of layout to what we've got now. But um, the actual fried dill pickles, uh, they were popularised by a guy called Bernal Fatman Austin. Yes. Uh, why he hasn't got a Nobel Prize, I don't know. Um, but he um, popularised those in 1963 at the Duchess Drive-In in Arkansas. He kept the recipe a secret. It was only known to him and his family. Uh, but the recipe is still used to make frickles at... Get this. I almost fell off my chair when I read this. The recipe is used annually at Pickle Fest, which <gasps> is held in Atkins every May. Don't um, worry, you don't have to say it. I've already put it on our list. Great, it's on the we spreadsheet. Brilliant. Yeah, we're going. <laughs> Pickle Fest. Uh, so yes. Pickle Fest. It's a two-day festival dedicated to all things pickle. It's not There's long pickle enough. eating. There's pickle juice drinking competitions, uh, mm-hmm. tractor pulls, live music, arts and crafts, fun for all the family, all pickle related. Uh, it sounds like Mecca. I want to go. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, I, I can feel how excited I am talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like on the edge of my seat talking about pickles. Um, yeah, but frickles, I... You, you still don't see them a hell of a lot over here, but they are definitely becoming more and more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, we have them quite a lot when we go to Bristol, don't we? We do. Um, we do. When, well, whenever we see them, basically, whenever we encounter a bar that has frickles, they are bought. Yes. Um, there's a bar opening up near me um, this month, and they're having the first vegan, fully vegan kitchen uh, in swansea mm-hmm. bar and i've already requested that they put frickles on the menu <laughs> <laughs> you started your campaign early <laughs> yes good work um, yeah that's my little frickle part for you Bernal thank Fatman you Austin. i'm glad i'm glad i know those origins i've been knowing that um americans don't like to call anything french anymore like they don't call them french fries i'm wondering if mm-hmm. they now call them patriot pickles <laughs> that's my prediction somewhere somewhere o- I, over there they call them patriot pickles. i like the alliteration of fat man frickles yeah he's great i'd like to hang out with him mm-hmm. um so i thought i would end by taking us way back because okay. i mentioned you know like um a bit of bit of ancient rome with the dough wrapped around food and also you know we know we get our pubs our, our taverns our taverna from ancient rome so I thought, I bet they had some good bar snacks or something. So what they had is a popina. And a popina is like a street food bar hybrid. So it would have been a small sort of space on, on the street where they had a large counter. And that was their kind of bar and cooking area. So they would cook directly from there and then serve food and drinks. And we have lots of really good archaeological evidence for what they looked like and what they sold because we have uh, the remains of them from Pompeii. So there were, in fact, 13 popina just on one road along the theatre district. And we know that because they're decorated with theatre masks and mythology scenes. But they had about 80 popina in total in Pompeii. So these were really popular, but yeah, especially like on the way to entertainments. 
some of the popping it was standing room only. So you would just go grab your, your drink and your food and then be on your way. Others had tables and chairs and then some had reclining sofas. Yeah. Um, I'll reserve one of those, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you like a reclining sofa. I mean, in fact, it was the classy thing to do. So not reclining while eating was actually seen as very lower class. So there are actually quite a lot of writings of people going to bar experiences uh, and they're very snooty, uh, calling anyone who goes there criminals and runaway slaves. Um, essentially, because the people writing this stuff down were the higher class people who would recline. So if ever they saw a bar that was standing room only, it's like, it's just for slaves and criminals. Uh, can we please normalise reclining whilst eating? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in Pompeii, actually, there's, there's some graffiti. There's a lot of graffiti, but there's one um, found in a room connected to a bar at Pompeii that lists the menu for us still. It's amazing. Uh, it had bread and cheese and sausage and white bait, which is fish, and porridge. Porridge for lining your stomach properly. Um, it also <laughs> tells us the cost of different qualities of wine. So they would even have... It wasn't like they sold one wine. They would have... Just like you would go to a bar menu today, it's like you can have the cheap wine, you can have the really nice wine, they have that... And they also listed the bar women's names, so you would know who was serving you and who he could talk to, rather than having like a badge or something. Nice. Yeah. Um, December last year, twenty twenty, archaeologists fully uncovered one of these bars, and they found duck bone fragments, as well as the remains of pigs and goats, fish and snails in the earthenware pots. Um, and but these were ingredients that were all cooked together, kind of like a paella. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. That's what they would have had. And they also found crushed fava beans. But this wasn't eaten. This was actually used to modify the taste of the wine because they were found at the bottom of the uh, wine jar. And there's a quote here from the Director General of the Archaeological Park of Pompeii. It's currently Massimo Asana. He says, The counter seems to have been closed in a hurry and abandoned by its owners, but it is possible that someone, perhaps the oldest man, stayed behind and perished during the first phase of the eruption. The remains of another person may be those of either an an opportunist thief or someone fleeing the eruption who was surprised by the burning vapours just as he had his hand on the lid of the pot that he had just opened. So that's what's actually kind of frozen in that archaeology. It's incredible. Was there so also know... the remains of a woman reclining with a bag of Prosecco crisps? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but her name was spelled wrong on the wall of the bar. It said celery. <laughs> Hillary. <laughs> celery. Hillary. Here lieth Hillary and her awful Prosecco crisps. Uh, so we know that Romans like brought Taverna to Britain and they also brought with them foods such as cabbages, peas, cherries and apples. All of those were brought to Britain from Rome. So it's quite likely that given that they brought taverns and they brought those food with them, that those would have been some of the earliest pub foods, I think. Certainly peas continue to be eaten in pubs all throughout um, history. Love peas. See, that's the thing, though, because you mentioned boiled peas in Mm -hmm. your chat earlier. Mm -hmm. So they're not like... Like, I've got these crunchy chickpeas, which have been air fried or whatever and they're yeah. nice and easy to pick up but i don't imagine being able to pick up boiled peas easily they're a bit of a faff to snack on without cutlery mm, they're not that much harder than picking up peanuts really i mean they probably wouldn't mm. have been hot and they wouldn't have been overboiled. i wouldn't have thought i'd do it i'd sleep 
<laughs> for sure. Um, and they were probably as well. They were like quite chunky peas, in the rather than the little petit pois that uh, mm, Mr. Bird's like gives us as well. I just feel like rather than, rather than boiling them, like I just kind of pop them out of a pod and eat them that way. Because <laughs> you're fancy and you want to eat them on a recliner. You want someone to pop them for you. Yeah, just pop them directly. You want, you want someone to pop your pea. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to stop that conversation right now because I know where it's going. Um, <laughs> I have got I have got one more thing actually. Okay. Now, time for some myth busting. Do you mm. think salty snacks really make you drink more? I do. Yes. Okay. Let's find out. So, <laughs> as part of we're going to space again. Space teaches us so much about drinks. Uh, as part of the Mars 500 projects which sent one small group of men into space for 105 days and another for 205 days. Scientists investigated how sodium, so salt, um, affects the amount that they were drinking and peeing. So they fed both group. Uh, peeing is in urinating, not eating pods of peas. Um, <laughs> so they, they fed both groups the same menu throughout, except uh, during weeks-long stretches, they'd tinker with the salt levels in the food. And when the data came in, what they found was that the men did, in fact, drink more fluids immediately after eating the saltier foods. So the theory of if we give you salty foods in the bar, you will order another drink is true. However, they consumed less water overall over that period. And yet they still peed more. And they had saltier urine. So that thing of... I had another drink quite quickly because I had salt and now I'm peeing more and people think they had more water overall is actually false. They had less water. So what happens is that um, increased urine production is unrelated to your total fluid intake, which is contradicting what we thought about it previously before this study. So according to the researchers, the reason um, that the spacemen were weeing more after eating saltier foods has to do with urea, which, you know, is not water. So this is formed in the kidneys and muscles and it helps to rid the body of nitrogen. But when they did the studies in animals, it said it suggested that urea may also hold water in the body while flushing sodium out. So you're actually, when you're peeing more urea that's heavy in salt, you're actually retaining more water. Mm -hmm. um, so it takes energy to produce urea to combat that excess salt that you've got in your body. And that's why in the studies they did in animals as well, mice were fed salty diets, um, ended up consuming more food. So less water, more food, which might explain why the human volunteers in this space trial said that they were hungry. They complained of hunger when they were given the saltier diet, even though they were given the same amount of food as the other group. And by that logic, the researchers suspect mm. that rather than inducing thirst, sodium or salt-heavy foods actually make us hungry. Myth busted. Myth busted. Myth busted. Myth busted. Yeah. So there we go. Salty foods make you drink more in the bar, but not more water overall. So do bear that in mind when you get home and you're having your water after your bar session. <laughs> That's it. I'm snacked out. Me too. I've got some crisps to throw in the bin now. <laughs> I mean, you really committed to that bit. Like, you bought a big bag of crisps that you knew were disgusting. But, yeah, um, I did. 
for the sake of eating two crisps. They don't do them in smaller sizes. I'm going to give them to Chris. (laughs) Give them to Chris, see what he says. Let us know next time how that all went down. I will. (laughs) And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to rehydrate our salty, salty mouths. (laughs) Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Stop it, it's self-harm now. Horrible. <laughs> 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 you can always hear me sing and this song. Show me the way to go.